0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders.
1: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and KTM who are ready to race at the Algarve International Circuit next week in all three categories. In Moto3 they'll have the KTM RC4, Moto2 and GP with the KTM RC16. KTM now also have a brand new limited edition Beast, the 2023 KTM Super Duke R, for petrol heads that want a unique way to tackle the track. Check out KTM.com for more info or drop into your local KTM dealer. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we've got a special edition of Blind Date. MotoGP's pit lane reporter, Simon Crayford is back to once again confess his undying love for David Emmett on the pod. And we're going to ch- chat to Simon about the 2023 MotoGP season and also some of the changes that we're seeing within the class over the last few years.
2: Simon, it's great to have you back on the pod. Uh, good to be uh, back chatting with you guys and seeing your faces on the uh, Zoom yeah, it's been a while actually, Simon,
1: since I had a chance to catch up with you. Obviously, David, Adam and Neil get the chance regularly, but uh, great to have you back on the pod. Every time you come on, it's always very popular because you're able to give us a very different insight into the paddock compared to what we see. You're always down in pit lane getting the, the nitty gritty of what's happening down there. So great to have you back. Yeah, my pleasure.
2: Let, let's. Get, I can't wait to get into it. And uh, also, it's uh, it, it's fun for me because I kind of get in my own little world down the lane, and not conversing with um, other journalists so much. So it's good, it'll be good to hear your take on things, you know, not just what's rattling around in my head.
0: Steve, can I just bring you back to the introduction for a moment? I know we've just passed St. Patrick's Day, but is it KTMRR
2: or OR? or? Hey, I spotted that too. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what. There's just some words that are difficult for an Irishman to say, so uh, I'm not even going to comment on that. <laughs> and it's it, we're, we're 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 recording this just after Paddy's Day, as you said, Adam. So it's going to be a case of there's going to be some times when the Irish just comes out of me,
3: and I make no apology for that. I'm slightly disappointed you're not wearing your big Guinness hat, Steve.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's just hidden away after after the parade, Neil, I have to leave it in hiding again for a few days. But uh, it's it's just the way of the world. David, do you have anything you want to add about it? You're the only one of us actually wearing a green jumper right now. So you're clearly still in the Paddy's Day mode.
4: Uh, yeah, well apparently I'm like uh, a 16th Irish or something, So, um, uh, but my family background is so um, mysterious, uh, shall we say, it's the sort of thing where you're not allowed to ask any questions because of the awkward answers and awkward silences it causes, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm probably a bit Irish. <laughs>
1: Well, the one thing about that, David, is don't let Simon know that there's that much mystery to you. You have to make <laughs> sure that in this episode of Blind Date, you keep you keep some of that uh, withheld. But uh, Simon, just to go back to your job, obviously for everyone listening, they're always interested to know how you find out what you find out in pit lane. And I know that yourself and David used to work together, and it's the same with all the pit lane reporters. You spot something, you give the info to someone else, but you have to spot it as well, and it's it's a tricky job.
2: Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things help and that is uh first i i'm a motorcycle mechanic you know before i made it in racing i did my apprenticeship as a bike mechanic so i know understand the mechanical side built my own bikes in the beginning um then i love it i love you know the 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 machinery I love the bikes I love to see what the engineers are trying to get out of the riders are requesting and you can see it in their bikes you know in the adjustments um, and uh, finally I think the big part is spending time in pit lane when you um, as David will be able to tell you when you spend every morning every warm-ups uh, before every session looking at them Then you get to know what they look like. So when you see something new, you know what I mean? It stands out. But that takes a long time. But, you know, it takes, I would say, half a season before you've got all the manufacturers and all the riders uh, in your head so you can spot, spot the difference when it comes.
0: Simon, I wasn't in Sepang, but I was in Portimao and it occurred to me that one of the hardest working aspects of that test were the garage doors. I mean, they were up and down like a jack-in-the-box. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think the team, do you think it's sometimes it's a little bit over the top or the secrecy because there's only so much you can hide anyway. The bikes are wheeled out, you know, they're started up, there's a period there where everybody can see what's going on.
2: Uh, well, the thing is, I understand they want to close the garage doors, um, some more than others. Uh, Like Aprilia, for example, are more on the open side, and Honda would be the other extreme. You know, there's everyone else is kind of in the middle, somewhere, varying degrees. But um, a lot of the time, when they're going back in the garage, they don't want to show you what they're working on, Um, and especially if they undress the bike, that none of the manufacturers want to want us to see what is underneath. You know, the fuel tank and the seat unit, and, and so uh i don't mind i mean it's part of the game so i I don't get offended at all i'd smile at the boys and they kind of smile apologetically as the door goes down and uh my i mean it's at the end of the day you get a good look at the bikes when they warm them up from cold because they spend a long time outside the garage sitting and you you can have a really good look around and spot watch change but for example it's important uh, to them, they like to hide how they lay out everything underneath those fairings. You know, for example, um, Aprilia said, told me they did a lot of work over the winter at um, re, what's the word, um, distributing all of those parts underneath all the electronic gadgets, the wiring, um, and uh, they don't want to show that off. They think that's a lot of um like weeks or months work they don't want to just give it away you know to option oh that's a good idea we might put it there
4: yeah, that's interesting because a, a long time ago I interviewed a one of the Elmore designers, and he came from an industrial design background. And one of the things that he was he was so focused on was packaging, which is just like getting all of the bits in the uh, in the right place. Do you know what I mean? most efficiently, because you see you see it a lot with Honda. You've got like the, 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 their their tank cover, and then there's all these little plastic covers on the side, and they keep on changing location, changing size. <laughs> and when that's done, you know that they've done something and they've moved something you know they've moved the, the, the uh, they'll have moved some cabling they'll have moved uh, some hardware uh, that'll be uh, moved around um also remember saying it, it the importance of this i remember seeing um a documentary about uh, about aircraft design and boeing and one of the one of the ways that 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 for example the 3D, uh, you know, like CAD 3D modeling, actually changed because it allowed them to re- route all of the cables really logically. They knew where everything was going to go. Otherwise, it was just a question of like, well, we've got sort of, you know, miles and miles of cabling. We've got nowhere, no way of knowing where to put it. The, this, I think, is, is one of the most sort of like intriguing things. So I can understand why the,
2: why they would want to uh, they want to hide it. For years, um, talking to mechanics that I know well. Um, Right from when I was riding through to now, it's interesting when they change manufacture and they'll tell you, oh, my God, what I was working on was a complete mess compared to this is beautiful or the other way around, you know, Mm. when they move manufacture. So they vary a lot, you know, and make the mechanics job a lot easier or a lot harder. And uh, but it also accounts for um, things being in the wrong place for heat uh, vibration, uh, etc. you know, as well as weight distribution, you know, the obvious one.
0: I think that's one thing that race fans probably don't appreciate so much from the bikes because, you know, you assume these things are created just for outright performance. And of course, that's the number one priority, but also the architecture of the engineering is something that's very important as well. I did an interview with Paul Chirathen, um, you know, Paul Spagaro's crew chief um, for the Gas Gas Factory racing team in Portimao. And he was saying to me, with the sprint format coming in, in 2023, the way to work on the bike and to be able to service it and maintain it is going to become even more crucial. So when factories can go back to the blueprints, if you like, and think, well, we're looking for gains here, but also we need to make it simpler here, then that's going to be one of the, the important facets of, of the racing, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the things you see is um, they'll change something to do with the shock layer a little bit. A, a little bit, um, they'll make it a bit different. You've got no idea why they've done it, and then you uh, actually realise it's because it it will take them like. Four minutes to change a shock instead of six minutes to change a shock, and six minutes to change a shock, or four minutes means they get one more lap uh, uh, during practice. Uh, basically, all of these things uh, c- can be really, really important. It's the same with like uh, a lot of the tool. Uh, I think a lot of the bolts use the same uh, torque. You'll see. I always like watching the tools that people are using. You know, you can see that they are. Um, uh, a lot of stuff is all, a lot of the, the, they'll try to use sort of like as few different bolt sizes as possible because that way, you know, you don't have to worry about, uh, figure out what, what, what you got to talk something for. You don't have to search around for, uh, for, for nuts and bolts and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it, it's just really, it's really interesting to see how they're optimizing working and not just optimizing speed. Yeah. It's interesting to say that, Dave,
1: because that's the same in everyday life. Like we were, we were painting. And it seemed that every plug had a different screw. And we were having to change screwdrivers. You were having to go from a flathead to a Phillips head. We were having to do everything all the time. And it was just, this is just making everything difficult. And it's for something as simple as removing plugs. Imagine what it's like after a crash. Like we saw it at the second Superbike round in Indonesia where Kawasaki had to get Jonathan Ray's bike repaired after the Superpole race crash to get it ready for the restart. If you're not efficient, you're just not going to be able to make the restart. So you need to make sure that everything works really well together. And that's one of the things that I find quite interesting for, for me compared to using MotoGP, like for Simon, you're saying that you're in pit lane all the time through the course of the sessions. I get that during the tests and then the rest of the time when superbikes are on track, I'm in the commentary box. So you don't get the chance to see what people are working on until you go down at the end of the day and you're trying to compare what you saw a week ago to what you're seeing today or what you saw yesterday to today. And it is one of those things that during the course of a session, now that there's so much innovation in MotoGP, that if you're able to keep an eye on things, you do get to see the changes that are being made. And I think when we go from Valencia to the Valencia test that's the Spang test I thought it was quite interesting that um, we saw so many changes for different bikes I thought uh, obviously we saw with um, Jack Miller jumping on the KTM for instance in Valencia they went straight to the, the 2023 bike for Jack And then over the course of the winter, they're bringing more and more in. And this is what you have to keep track of. And when you look at that innovation, it's all in different areas compared to when you were racing. If you think back to the end of your 500 career, it was all about the fire and order from the engines. And now it's all about aero. It's always an area that the teams focus on to try and drive that development forward.
2: Um, Just to go back to about tidying everything up, making sure that... um, they're good to work on and efficient and save time. Um, that you did dead right um, about the sprint races. Some of the mechanics were telling me that they're genuinely worried if you if their rider has a big one, big crash at the end of qualifying, and then the sprint race is a flag to flag. Yeah, you know, yeah. This 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 all this scenario is not. You know, <laughs> it's unlikely, you know, to have both things, but it's possible. And they're saying you cannot rebuild a bike uh, in that time. But the other thing is, even if you do, uh, you can't check it, which means you're going to go out in a race with a bike that you just built, haven't checked. So it's not, and he says, what do we do? Put six bikes in the truck, you know, for two riders. Um, so they're, they're having a bit of a hitch at the moment. Just uh, about that then, Simon, because obviously
1: when you look at it, it as I said, in Indonesia, we had a similar situation. Jor went out with a fully repaired bike. His teammate, Alex Lowes, went out on a brand new bike. And both of the, both of those, the first time that they're breaking in anger is down into turn one. As a rider, instead of looking at it from the engineering perspective, as a rider, how big of a challenge is that to deal with? Because you have to be committed in, in that instance, it was an eight-lap race in, in the Super Bowl race after it was restarted, and you can't give up an inch into turn one.
2: No, I, I don't think it's such a worry because you're, you're always going to get the outlet, you know, and the outlet does let you know that everything's working. You know, riders get to feel things, you know, if something's wrong, they get to feel it really quickly. Yes, it's going to be a back of their mind, but if on that outlet, there's a couple of heartbreaking, you know, before you get to the start line. Um, that you feel everything is looking you know, the brake pressures like normal. Uh, it's going to give you confidence to go straight away. You know, it's only if it not right that yeah, you're going to get rattled.
1: What do you make Simon then of the innovations we're seeing in MotoGP now, obviously the arrow over the course of the last few years has been the big interest and talking point last week's pod. We talked a bit about Yamaha and the rear wing and all the changes that we're seeing like, for you, what do you
2: think of the 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 innovation we got right now uh, i mean it, it's it's working you know the the machines are going fast uh, at least the ones leading are um sure I, I mean if you're asking uh, if what I think is stand back and watch um or uh, and are you asking what I think of Aero in general you know like if, if, I'm curious because I can go two different ways. I'm not sure which way to go. I'm, go. I'm
1: now quite curious about both ways, Simon, exactly. to be honest. Yeah, same. <laughs> like if, if you look at it from, from both perspectives, because the thing with it is, in instances like this, like, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I quite like to see innovation. But as a race fan, do I want to see as much aero coming in as what we've seen over the last few years? I probably don't really. So I'm kind of conflicted about it from, from both perspectives for myself. So well, like I'm quite curious as for your perspective
2: as well. I am pretty much the same as you just described. Uh, I like, uh, and I, I mean, I didn't like the aero. I thought uh, it doesn't bring anything positive until i rode the bike you know when it doesn't bring anything positive to our sport meaning the racing uh you know it's making it worse if anything you know the error you can't get as close to each other um you know there's people that have figured out and people that haven't so it spreads the field apart more you know haves and have nots um but i rode the, well, a couple of the bikes three of the bikes now and i could not believe how stable they are like, um, I've mentioned this after I rode the Aprilia at um, I love that last section of Mugello. It's I think it's the most hair-raising, brilliant section of track, probably, I've ridden in my life. But, and you get to do it every lap, you know. And it, It's mental, that really last fast chicane, the last turn down that front straight and lean over, you know, swerve to the right on the bank, lean over and top here. You feel the RPM go up as you lean over and go over that start-finish hump, you know, just after the start-finish straight. At, you know, it's 300 even on a stock bike, um, and it's six gear, and you're fighting. Every bike I've ridden over there, you fight to keep the front on the ground. You can't sit on the seat because that extra weight back will wheelie more. So you're, you're standing on the balls of your feet with your face in the, in the what do you call it, where the locks are, trying yeah. to keep the front down. And doing a wheelie at 300 kilometers an hour plus. And it is brilliant. I absolutely love it. And it's unstable. And it's why riders ride bikes, is for that buzz, you know? And then, but it takes some bravery, some skill, you know, to do it. And uh, the last bike I rode there that was really fast uh, was a V4R. And before I rode the, the, um, uh, the, the Aprilia MotoGP bike, I got off and I remember saying um, to the, the guys that were looking after me with the bike from Aprilia that an aging, overweight track dayer can <laughs> hold it flat there and just sit on the seat, you know, like, and that, that counts me as well now, you know, I'm, I'm an aging, overweight track dayer as well. Um, but guys, seriously, it, it, the, the bike was bolted to the road. You didn't even have to be careful going over there. Just hold it full. The only risk was the rear coming up and doing a bit of a over-rev, you know.
4: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it takes away some, the danger in some areas, but it just shifts it somewhere else because, you know, all you're, all you're doing is, okay, you keep the front, your front down over the crest at Magello, which makes it a little bit easier, but then it just puts more and more emphasis on the breaking point and, you know, and where, and where you can, you can start to break. And so, and that, that corner is just a wee bit hairy with a wall on one side and uh, downhill and um, uh, and then round the corner so yeah it, it you're just moving you're, you're moving I, I think riders are still taking the same amount of risk yes. it's just that where they're taking risk has is changing because of the because of the aero and because of the ride height device
2: well the rider um i'm um, just thinking it was it the rider that was there said to me oh you should wait. Wh- you should try it, or wait till you try it with the ride height di- device down as well it's even oh, more yeah. stable. yeah it's even more stable but basically the all three manufacturers MotoGP gp bikes that i rode uh, that was the big takeaway is how smooth they were uh, did everything how, how they did everything so well but how stable you know it doesn't matter where on the track they were extremely stable compared to a normal motorcycle without but sorry we've got a little bit off track um the 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 whole thing about the wings is it's not making the racing closer which is a real shame and on the other side um it is I, i do like that the we're starting to see the tech advances going through from the wings to the stock bikes you know i rode the bmw m whatever it is at uh uh, at Austria last year for the first time and I've got to say I was impressed as well, it's moved on again, you know, since the stock bikes that I'd uh, ridden until that moment, you know um, so it is coming through but the, the the other side that I wanted to describe as standing back looking at MotoGP is, I mentioned this on After Flag um, a little while ago, well the last test or test before I can't remember, standing back looking at MotoGP you see, well, I see over the the last years how the bikes were shorter and higher, and they didn't have wings and devices. And um, and as I said, then the Yamaha and the Honda was very successful in that period, you know. And then the Italians, um, namely Ducati, first have built this longer, lower bike that works with wings and devices, and moved the goalpost and it's like the others are a couple of years behind figuring out how they've done it and how their machine needs to change uh, to suit the aero and it's like one big package now you know that all works together not just a bike that you put wings on it because it's pretty much proven now with by Yamaha and honda uh, maybe ktm as well that that doesn't work it's the whole bike has to work together with those things and that's how I see it. And and just to finish what I was meaning about this is is like, it feels to me that there's like some invisible wall um, that the other manufacturers can't get over at the moment, haven't been able to get over.
4: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, like I like your point about because I've been saying the same thing. You know, like we have we've gone from sh- from short and high to long and low. Uh, Casey Stoner was asked this that I think when he first jumped on the Honda in about two thousand and eleven, uh, there was one race where Niels Boulding asked him, you know, sort of like, what would would you prefer, long and low or short and high? And then he said short and high because yeah, obviously the old paradigm was he wanted lots of um, movement in the bike. He wanted it going backwards and forwards so that you could, you know. Um, uh, get some weight over the front uh, where, uh, for for braking or for cornering, sort of move it around, and that weight transfer was much more difficult on a long uh, long low bike. But the aerodynamics has completely sort of changed that, and it's uh, changed it the other way around. And if you see the Aprilia now, uh, especially when they got all their launch, you know, the 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 start thing, the thing looks like a proper dragster. It's just it's it's, it's Genuinely, uh, genuinely bonkers, but to go from, from one concept of a motorcycle of being short and high and lots of transfer to long and low and less transfer and transfer in a completely different way. It, it, for the engineers is a completely, they have to completely change their way of thinking and it, it's not a quick process.
0: Yeah, just a quick question for Simon. I mean, I asked riders a, a couple of years ago for a story, you know, what they thought was the biggest innovation in MotoGP. And um, the majority answer was the seamless gearbox, um, especially Valentino. He was um, raving about that particular invention. I just wondered if you reckon we could see something as revolutionary as that in the next couple of years, or it's just going to stick to um, peripheral things on the bike.
2: Um, I agree. When you first jump on those bikes that is the thing that stands out the most they're absolutely beautiful to use this gearbox that has no cuts no loss of torque delivery you know so it feels like a constant drive as you accelerate forward with the throttle and you push the gear lever there's no cut you know and your head doesn't dip and bank you know which is not any motorcycle they've ridden before It's absolutely beautiful. The problem is it's hundreds of thousands of euros to lease those gearboxes for the year, for the season. And um, they have uh, engineers that only, well, not only, that specialize in the gearbox and nobody's allowed to see it but them, you know, out in the team. Only that guy's allowed to see it. And um, the high maintenance you know at the moment as i understand it they need a lot of parts changing regularly you know everything's got mileage and so because especially well first of all they could make a simpler one year that they're not going to be more worried about the technology but uh, the big one is at the moment is figuring out how to have that amount of talk and stress through something so uh trick you know something so amazing and keep reliable for street stuff, but I really hope it makes it through in the next, you know, because it's wonderful to use. Uh, I have to ask, do you feel it click? You know, when
4: you, you normally when you change gear, you know, you click it into gear and you feel it click. Yeah. Do you feel that on the on the seamless gearbox as well still? Yes, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly the same feeling. Okay,
4: it's just that you've just got this sort of like infinite electric, almost like electric torque sort of thing. Feeling.
2: Yeah, well, they do um, make, I could hear the engine does cut a little bit, but, the torque delivery doesn't but it's so yeah. smooth and so less chance of the rear tire letting go uh, less chances of instability because of that um so there's no bang for the next gear you know you feel on a normal bike yeah um the the thing to use is exactly the same but they did a bit of a chat um like a bit of an explanation on the gearbox before i wrote it which i didn't Get with uh, a and KTM, and I didn't have any problem. But basically, what they were saying is, do not change up a gear with the throttle closed, and yeah. do not go down a gear with the throttle open, because um, it <laughs> it needs the torque in that direction to be able to work uh, sufficient, you know, well. But also, they said there's a risk of high side if you, um, for example, close the throttle because you want to slow down, but change up a gear, it will deliver so much torque, even though your throttle's closed, that you can high side off the thing, you know? Um, So they were really, really strict about that. How it all works, we're never going to see because it's super secret, but yeah, gorgeous. I hope there's one other thing. I hope that with that gearbox, that filters through to the road bikes, um, which could filter through without being seamless. And that is that first gear is right at right at one end, not between first and second. You know, right at one end, but there's a gate so you can't go in there. I think track is are going to that innovation, and it's already in the Moto3 bike. So, and they're reliable. You know, so I can't see why it can't come through soon to uh this big sports bikes
1: at least yeah because that's obviously one of the things that we saw with Ducati with the v4 r and and their introduction first that's made a big difference for them from their production bike from the outset but um just to move on a little bit from the the tech side because obviously we've got to preview the 2023 season as well just yeah. to go to the sporting side as well what's everyone's opinion on the sprint races we're going to have for this year obviously for me we've had it for the last four seasons in world Superbikes. I love the sprint race format. I think the Super Superpole race is one of the most exciting races we have through the course of a race weekend. But what does everyone think about MotoGP and Grand Prix racing having sprint races, Simon? What about what's your perspective on it?
2: I've um, obviously been asked a lot this since it, you know came out, um, and my progression in my mind was when I first heard it. It was the journalists asking the writers about it. The writers didn't know, and that was a proper disaster you know and so the writers w- didn't take it very well because they hadn't been asked you know um and but i see a progression much like mine and that um at first you go oh god you know they're putting more load on the writers because i do see stuff from the writer's point of view at first because um i still see myself as a writer more than a journalist you know and i'll i i have their back. Uh, you know what I mean, I I, um, I care about their well-being a lot, you know, as if I was still riding or they're my, they're my kids, you know what I'm saying, I don't know how else to put it, but, so I thought, are oh, they going to get that loaded up on them, they've already done the deal, they're not going to get paid more for it, you know, they're going to put their bodies on the line one more time per weekend, and I, I didn't like that, this situation, you know, um, and, you could see that the writers felt the same, you know. A lot of them, not all. But then I realised, you know, when you listen to dawner's explanation of why, uh, then you realise they're they're trying to build the sport. Um, to, and if they build the sport, you know who's going to benefit, you know. Uh, if the writer gets more popular, the sport gets more popular. The writers to get the wages are going to go up. You know, there it's going to be not a problem to have more of the things you want whether it's for safety whether it's for uh, financial whether you know what I'm saying and right down to mechanics um, their support crew and that so I started going uh I see what they're doing and we'll all benefit if this works uh now it's happening and the deci- the decision is done we don't have to talk about that anymore um I'm the same as you I'm very excited about thing the races you know uh, one other thing to to explain, um, I thought about it in, you know, soup bikes have the sprint race, you know, on, we'll have this race on Saturday, the sprints on Sunday, right? They're, they have this race on sun, uh, Saturday. And I'm cooking on my barbecue because it's my weekend off. And my wife calls out, she always, she's a tech lady, she always finds it, you know, puts it on the TV and uh, she yells out, she yells out that it's qualifying. I'm sorry, Superbike Boys, I'm sticking to my barbecue. You know, I'm preparing that. (laughs) If she calls out, it's a race, I go, oh, I better get in and see what happens, you know? So I'm sure there must be a lot of other people the same. They're going to put tools down and go and see the race on Saturday, which is going to be good for our sport.
1: Yeah, I think that's the most interesting thing on a time, because at the end of the day, I'm I'm removed from being in the MotoGP paddock all the time now. And there's times on a Friday whenever I have to look at it and say, I can't give up all day Friday to watch free practice. I'll watch qualifying on Saturday and I'll obviously watch all the races. But there's times whenever you have to just put other things before. Yeah. But if it's a race, you're not doing that at all exactly. and i'm 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 really excited to see how it works out. and I look at it from a few different perspectives because obviously when COVID came in, we added an extra super sport and three hundred race. And I remember at the time I was thinking, do you know what? this is probably a bit too much because people are they going to be that interested to watch a second three hundred race? Turns out they always are because it's a race. People will always <laughs> sit down and watch it, and I think it's I think it's going to be a good thing for G p because Our Super Pole race is just balls to the wall, everyone giving it everything they have, and it's just beating each other up, and it's a proper fight. You know, a longer race, there's much more strategy involved. The Super Pole race is always just, if someone's in front of you, I'm coming through because I've only got 10 laps to make this move, 10 laps to get my reward for it. And I thought it was quite interesting, though, with MotoGP, and you mentioned about them not earning more money from it. When the Super Pole race came in, all of the superbike riders still got their bonus money as if it was a full race. That's why I was quite confused with MotoGP why this didn't happen. Because if you think back to 2019, when we first brought it in, Bautista was still getting 25 grand for each race win, including his Superpole wins. So he was cleaning up <laughs> in the early races of that. And, and it did take until after that for manufacturers, and Ducati were, I think the main one that did this, where they reduced their bonus money for a Superpole win. But the other manufacturers kept their bonuses up pretty high, so it is one of those ones that if you're able to get the results, you will you will earn long term on it as well.
4: I think the the difference here is that um, it was introduced in the middle of a contract period instead of at the end of a contract period, so people had already had um, had everything set, so they couldn't suddenly start to re- renegotiate their. Um, uh renegotiating their bonuses. I also wonder if that's the reason why Dora is calling them sprints rather than sprint races, because then if it's a sprint race, then you get your bonus.
0: Well done, David. Well,
1: in fairness, like when, when GP, when uh, Superbikes brought it in, it was also during a contract time. People were already under contract and it was just, you were able to say, my win bonuses are for wins, so I'm taking my money. <laughs> and it'd be a very difficult thing for for a contract lawyer not to be able to to figure out but yeah, obviously i
0: also had that multi-race culture different. steve you know so maybe there was, it was that i mean gp has always been one race so i think to enter a second race in there for the first time in what 75 years has um, created a bit of a culture shock for people
1: I'd say as well, if I was Ducati, I wouldn't fancy paying out Pekka Bagnaya's 100 grand win bonus twice <laughs> over a weekend. So maybe I'd find a little bit more for that compared to the 25, 30 grand that is in Superbikes.
3: Uh, I'm quite intrigued to see how the sprint goes. Um, obviously, it's something new and it's always exciting to see a new format when it drops just because it's a change from the old. Um, you know, you mentioned, Steve, about how everyone goes balls out in Superbike. It was interesting listening to Danilo Petrucci in Indonesia, basically telling off a lot of riders about how aggressive they were and saying he felt that basically riding conditions were quite dangerous because of how on the edge riders were, were kind of taking it in that shorter format. And, you, you know, there is reason to think that it will be like that in the early laps of MotoGP as well. Um, I think you will see an increase in aggression. But whether it's going to kind of shake up the order in the way that Dorna have been telling us, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, in Superbike, I was looking back through the winners of the sprint races or the Super Bowl races, as you call it, um, since they were introduced. And I think we've only had six occasions um, in the four seasons where a rider who didn't finish in the championship top three uh, won a race. So that's not exactly, you know, pointing to a whole different kind of landscape of results coming in. It's, it's only occasionally that you see guys from the kind of established. Uh, top order um, having a you know having a successful race there and I think in one or two of those it might have been down to weather kind of having a play so I'm not sure if we're going to start seeing guys like you know Joanne Meir and Repsol Honda or uh, Paula Spargo on the, the gas gas you know suddenly up at the front fight and I think we're going to see the same kind of the same order as we were doing on a Sunday race.
1: Well that's interesting though Neil, because what we've seen is there's some riders that are just better at the super pole race format and they get better results it might be for race wins but it's challenging for podiums and it's where you're able to overcome some of the shortcomings of your bike it might be tire life it might be anything else but we do have some riders that just seem to excel a little bit more in the super pole race challenge for a podium whereas maybe they're a top five runner in the in the other race
2: guys I'd like to throw something in and this is only uh from my time. Racing, you would look at the qualifying order and go, um, "This guy, you know, being meaning people ahead of you in qualifying, for example, or around you in qualifying, and you can pretty much predict who will be there in the second half of the race because a lot of riders can go fast on new tires and then have not figured out, especially if they're younger or they've got good machinery and they're younger. That's the normal." um recipe so they can go really fast while the tires are good but they haven't figured out fast when the tires in the second half of the race so my thought is that um the more experienced complete riders who can win a gp are going to go oh god you know the guy the the young fellow with the good bike that can't ride on worn tires is going to be there the whole way in the sprint race does that make sense you know, like I'm not even thinking of someone in particular. I'm just saying that you know the more established guys are going to go. Oh, we're going to get a headache from the, the the less complete
1: package. Does that make sense? So, how many races will Jorge Martin win in the super in the sprint race format?
2: Well, funny you say this. I'm hoping that, and I understand why you say it, but I'm hoping Jorge this year will be the complete package. You know. Um, he needs to be, and I'll be disappointed. He's got all the potential too. I'll be disappointed if he isn't, and uh, I'll be surprised if he isn't.
1: Yeah, we, we talked about it on last week's pod that the change to the 23 engine is going to be a big factor for him. He looks much happier over the course of the the testing, but uh, that's where, you, when push comes to shove, he needs to make that step as well. He's got the experience, and now it's up to him to get the results. Bang on, bang on.
0: I was just writing the same thing, actually, Simon, for um, like a preview piece for the Telegraph, just on how sprint, will the sprints, and God, trying to avoid that use of the word races. Um, you know, we'll favor sprint riders... Races. Yeah, I know, Dave. and rebellious on that one, uh, yeah. How the the you know the format will favour those aggressive, explosive riders or those newer to the class, perhaps who don't really know how to optimize the tires, like you said. My my big fear. I, I'm really for the sprints. I think it's a great format. Um, I've worked many years in motocross, and they've had qualifying heats since 2010, um, and it's been like a, a very uh, distinctive part of the race program there. My only concern is. Uh, and, you know, I did an interview of Carlos Espaleta this week and he he kind of voiced the same thing is, uh, on the matters of safety because another a sprint, <clears throat> a competition is another start, which is usually the riskiest part of the, the race weekend, I guess you could say. Um, you know, I, I hope we don't get to a point where we see some sort of injury on the Saturday that counts riders out for the Sunday or even for a substantial period. I actually think like AMA Supercross, sprints you know on the worst case scenario could be a situation where replacement riders end up you know making more and more appearances i think you know you might see the likes of danny Pedros or mika Callio or jonas folger or cal crutchlow um, these guys being drafted in because of incidents that we see through 42 um you know competitive situations throughout the year so fingers crossed it doesn't happen
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, Ad, and it is one of those things that's going to be an interesting talking point all the way through the course of the season. Interestingly for us, we we usually try and keep our shows to about an hour. There's going to be no chance of that because uh, there's just been too much to talk about so far. We've got plenty still to come on the Paddock Pass podcast where we look forward to some of the other big talking points and topics of the 2023 season. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to look at who's going to be our big surprises in the 2023 campaign.
2: Renthal Street Clip On Handlebars are premium race spec clip ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters,
3: all developed in collaboration with top level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and KTM. So we've got Simon Crafar, MotoGP, Pit lane reporter joining us on the pod this week. And uh, we've already had a big discussion about where MotoGP is. We've talked about sprint races. Let's talk about the big surprises for the 2023 season. I think it's fair to say last year people expected Aprilia to make a step forward. But did we expect Aleish to be a title contender, a race winner? That was the big surprise last year, but what's going to be the big surprise this year, David?
4: Um, For me, the big surprise has been that uh, Ducati has resisted fiddling. You know, like normally they always, you know, Gigi loves a little bit of horsepower. Uh, They love to introduce new devices. They love to sort of find all sorts of new things to, uh, in an attempt to actually win, uh, you know, win a championship. So far, I mean, like, if I look at the GP23 and I look at the GP22. Um, I really have to strain to see any differences at all. It looks almost, uh, it looks almost identical, identical, but very, very small differences. Also, they've changed the engine to make it smoother rather than more powerful. It's probably, it might even be a little bit less powerful. Um, but just the, you know, the engine character, once they sorted out the electronics at, uh, at a pang, you know, they've, it, it's a really big uh, step forward. So for me, like the big surprise is that Ducati have, stuck with what they know i mean they've gone from you know like wanting to have a complete revolution every year to, to this tiny little almost yamaha japanese like evolution uh where they've just refined something and the, and i think it's really going to pay off through 2023
1: yeah and that's been one of the big talking points for each of the tests david really because we've seen it where Portimao, let's say, Pekka was able to do what seemed like two full sprint simulations. Everyone else was trying to make sure they got one in, but Ducati were able to spend the time on the final day just really working towards that first sprint race. And, and that comes from just evolving the bike rather than having big upgrades.
4: Yeah, I mean, basically they've done the opposite that they did to 2022. I mean, in 2022, they you know they, they spent the first two days of the of, of the race weekend uh still testing, and this year it seems like you know they finished testing pretty much at the end of Sepang, um, the, uh, and had two days just to sort of you know dick about on what is absolutely wonderful circuit.
1: Yeah, that's when we had Pecco with his famous, I'm a racer, I'm not a test rider quote. And uh, sure enough, he was a racer by the end of the season and it all worked out well for him. Neil, what about you? What's your big surprise for the 2023 season? Well,
3: I mean, I think this is my biggest surprise of the preseason, and perhaps it's going to be a big surprise for the year ahead. But I really thought KTM would be a bit closer to the front than they are currently. Um, You know, I thought everything that KTM had done over the off-season with their kind of signings and their recruitment uh, last year was was kind of going to be the the final step, you know, the the, the missing ingredient. Um, we know that drag, uh, sorry, that Brad Binder had dragged them to the, you know, the top six in the championship in the last two years, and that was more down to Brad's brilliance than the bike itself being, you know, a, a really a really top class bike. Um, and they made some interesting acquisitions. You know, obviously they brought Jack Miller over. They brought his crew chief over as well. Um, they brought Alberto Giribola uh, in from Ducati and their Bastianini's crew chief to work as like a performance analyst or performance engineer. I think his name was. And I think they've added a lot of people behind the scenes too. Um, they've obviously got the the, the uh, contract now with um, is it the Red Bull. Um,
0: red bull advanced technologies
3: yeah red bull advanced technologies exactly thanks ad um you know which is basically uh, a team of ex uh, f1 engineers have use of a wind tunnel and they've been there quite often to make sure that their um bike's aero is is kind of on point point. and uh, yeah just from what we've seen so far in pre-season it's been a little bit underwhelming i mean the bike seems to just have a, a kind of a fundamental uh, deficiency which is it lacks rear grip and brad binder has commented on how that has been a problem at all three tracks he's tested the the new rc16 on um and I, I don't really doubt that brad um i don't doubt that brad will be able to to fight at the front this year but i think it might be a similar situation to marquez at honda where it's more brad's brilliance than than kind of the, the bike having made a, a massive step forward so i would say yeah, maybe KTM not quite. I was expecting Brad to maybe be in the, in the fight for the championship this year. And it seems as though technically KTM aren't quite ready to, to be at that level. I mean, I'm saying this before the season starts, but, um, yeah, that would maybe be, um, be my surprise for the year.
4: What I find interesting is that KTM seem to have – they have some really brilliant people. You talk to the people at KTM, they really know what they're doing, and they're doing some just amazing things, uh, lots of really interesting things with 3D printing and stuff uh, and packaging and all the rest of it. Um, they've got brilliant riders, got brilliant crew chiefs. Uh, they have all these really, really clever people, but they seem to be sort of innovating in 27 different directions instead of uh, just focusing, like deciding to go down one road and seeing where it takes them sort of thing. Um Yeah, there's definitely – I mean, I'd be interested in hearing Simon's opinion of this, of the way that uh, uh, KTM work, because it does seem like they're doing lots and lots of brilliant things, but none of the – they're not taking a holistic approach.
2: My next um, – when you said surprises, I struggled to find any surprises. I have to say the – the only one is what Neil has just touched on, and it's not just KTM. Um, when I, I don't know if I call it a surprise, but it's something I've learned or the, the championship's teaching me, and that is it's um, not one particular match, manufacturer. It's, it's three, you know, and that is Yamaha, KTM, and Honda are all throwing so much at it. They did, and I, I expected all of them to make a step forward and they have all hit this what i said before invisible wall um, they can't seem to get over it and the only time they get over it is what well, in my opinion it's the brilliance of the riders they've got meaning barbio making the Yamaha look better brad making the ktm look better and mark uh, i think he's sandbagging a little and will make the honda look better you know um the thing is, I genuinely feel sorry for them because it is this period of technology that uh, that we're going through. And like Yamaha's turned up with a faster engine; they're experimenting with like different things, and they've succeeded in giving Fabio what they were aiming at—the faster engine that he wanted. Um, KTM have bought it like wow—they've done some work, you know, the, with the engine. I think it's firing order because it sounds different. Uh, it looks the same, so. Um, You know, the riders liked it. I mean, man, that's a lot of work. You know, they've got three or four different chassis there over testing. um, Loads of aero, you know, the riders have chosen. It looks like they've made steps forward in all these areas, like Yamaha. Honda, I don't know if they've made any steps forward, but they're trying their ass off. And all of them have hit a certain lap time, and it's like a wall. And as Fabio said, in, in, um, in Malaysia, you know, he had all these new tyres left over because of um, the rain. And then he threw them in on the last day, you know, expecting to make a second and a half like you do with new tyres, and he made half a second. It's like, what's going on? And I think it's a really interesting period that we're going through, Um and I can't wait to to for an engineer to tell me what that wall was now that they've got over it. But it seems like only... The, uh, the Italians of Ducati first and now Aprilia have managed their way over it I think it's something to do with the aero working with the rest of the bike but yeah that's the only kind of shock for me a surprise surprises that that there is this wall and it's become really obvious that they're all struggling to get over it.
0: On the KTM thing I think it's fairly obvious that you know we're going to see improvements from these factories I mean Portimao and Sepang were important for homologation um, setting that baseline to take uh, a line from Sebastian Risa, the technical coordinator of the of the KTM MotoGP effort, uh, and I think that's been done. Um, I wouldn't be so quick as to rule them out yet. I think KTM still have a lot to bring to the pile. Uh, I think there's extra competitiveness there that's really going to come out and it won't be just because of Brad Binder's brilliance. Um, Jack Miller, uh, he's on a two-year deal. I think you have to give him at least half a season to get used to the characteristics of the KTM and then see what he can do. Um, the fact that he was already quicker on the KTM than he was on the Ducati at Portimao and I know it was a different time of year and there was different climates and circumstances is significant, I think. Uh, so I, there are factors there. But for me, I think the surprise just dipping into another narrative is um, maybe Paulus Spogaro this year. Um, bearing in mind what we have said about the KTM platform, I just think if you take the context where Tech3, tech, 3, tech had a very difficult year last year, uh, Paul has had two very frustrating seasons being limited by what he could do at HRC. I think his combination with Paul Travathan and all of us have said in numerous podcasts and stories how important and crucial a a rider's relationship with his crew chief is. I think that kind of um, synergy those two guys have um, as well as the the kind of the technical base that Paul obviously loves with with the Gas Gas and the KTM bike is going to mean that he'll be... In contention for results that some of us will maybe rise an, raise an eyebrow at, so uh, he classifies as my surprise. I think of the of the season.
2: Adam, I completely agree with what you said, and that's why I said I feel sorry for them because, um, look, uh, the effort that KTM have done and what I've seen over this um, the test, you know, since late last year till now, is awesome. I think they have done what I fully expected to be, like Neil said, a big jump forward and be in that top bracket. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I'm right, but I think they are the ones that will get out of this hole first, out of um, the three that are having the tough time, you know, Yamaha, Honda, KTM. And uh, when I say that, though, when when you judge it, it's not one rider's result that I believe... Uh, that i see it as getting out of the hole it's all of their riders getting out of the hole you know so they've built a bike that everyone can ride and and why i say ktm first because it 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 i think it'll be that all of the riders take a step forward where um i mean this is only my gut feeling you know i've got nothing to no proof to base this on but um when we see yamaha running at the front don't say oh simon you're wrong look fabio that'll be Fabio. That's what I believe. You know, I'm talking when all of the riders make a step forward on that manufacturer, you know, they've got out of that hole, they've figured it out. And if I had to put money on it, I'd put it on KTM being the first to get out of that hole.
1: Yeah, because I think that's one of the most interesting things we have right now, because MotoGP is so close, and it's the same in World Superbikes, there's only a second from top to bottom, really. Like in Superbikes, we've got 18 riders all really closely matched. And it's the same in GP where you're missing out on a few tenths on a straight, you're missing out on half a tenth in the corners and it adds up to making it look like you're nowhere. But you only need to make that small step or more than likely just give the rider that little bit more confidence. And then suddenly you're right there and you've turned everything around. And like you said, Simon, it's down to the brilliance of the lead rider in a lot of cases. But that's where you know, I look at KTM, and obviously one of the big talking points over the winter was like in the superbike paddock was the likes of Remy Gardner, one and done, discarded, and then straight away he finds himself onto a good superbike, and he'll do well this year. Raul Fernandez, obviously a different situation to Remy, but you know the the same story. And then you look at it for this way for this season, they've got to figure a way to get Pedro Acosta onto a bike next year, probably. So. KTM has all this talent, whether it's, like David said, on the engineering side or on the riding side, and they need to try and fit everything together. So that's going to be one of the big things to to keep an eye on with KTM as well.
2: One other reason I feel sorry for these manufacturers and especially KTM coming in as new, you know, because they haven't had the the good past of Honda and Yamaha, um, is that it's the period of technology you know that because if we didn't have these wings and okay, wings and devices, we're back, in, they would already figure it out because you know it's down to the normal things that everyone knows It's chassis trying to get the most out of those tires. Um, you see what I mean? And you know engine power delivery, power. Uh, but we've got a whole new thing that is thrown a banner in the works that uh, is a new period of technology that is, I think, uh, responsible for you know the 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 tough time of those three manufacturers at the moment
1: yeah and that makes it very difficult for the riders which brings us on to who we think is going to be our biggest disappointment or what's the the big disappointment from 2023 and like i said it's so competitive in gp that and we talked about this on last week's pod franco Morbidelli he looks completely lost again over the winter and you're not really that far off but where you have people that are going to be your surprise people that are going to be your big winners there's always someone that has to be further down the field than you expect so adam who's going to be or what's going to be your big disappointment to
0: 2023 um i had to answer this question on an mxgb preview show steve and i find it really difficult to to identify a disappointment i think it's uh, doing a bit of undue service to people that haven't even raced yet but my concern is for those who uh, you could say their MotoGP futures are looking a little tight, such as Franco Morbidelli, who I've no doubt if he jumped on a Ducati, like perhaps any rider would, would be competitive. But he's clearly not feeling you know, the uh, the necessary feedback or whatever with the M1 chassis. And I think that's really counted against him. The fact that Fabio quattaro had to go back to like a 2022 setting is not going to work for Frankie if he follows the same direction. Taka Nakagami as well. I think his time is really on the clock in MotoGP. He's going to have to produce something this year. Um, so in terms of disappointments, hard to say, but I think, you know, there are in what will be a a crucial contract season in the sport, um, I think there are a few riders that may be sweating a little bit more than they normally would.
1: Yeah, and I think it is always interesting that because when you look at the situation riders get in, it's momentum that works against them. Alvaro Bautista is a good example. He went from the Ducati to the Honda and was struggling for two years on the Honda, crashing his brains out. He was injured a lot over the course of those few years from big crashes and he lost his confidence and he did everything he could to get back in the Ducati. Sure enough, gets back in the Ducati, wins a world championship. He's on a package that makes him the best bike and rider in world superbikes. And it works perfect for him. But you have on the other side of that, Scott Redding goes from the best bike on the grid to a BMW. And then it's, where does he go from that if it doesn't work out? You go further and further down the grid. Eugene Laverty is a good case in point in that. From 2013, he was the arguably the best superbike rider in the world on the Aprilia. You go to Suzuki, you go to an open MotoGP bike, you come to different stages and you just struggle to get yourself back to where you feel you should be. And Franco could easily be a situation like that. If you, like you said, if you put him on the best bike in the grid, he's probably still going to be a great rider. He's a world champion for a reason. But if you're Ducati, do you want to upset your apple cart with all the riders you have to put Franco on the bike when you've got so many great riders already? And that's where... You know the momentum works against you. Nakagami's obviously going to be up against Ayagura to keep a seat. For Honda, they'll look at it and say, "Well, we've invested a lot in both of these guys. We know what we get from Nakagami. Maybe it's worth taking the punt on someone else." And and that's basically what happens to riders, and it's it's that psychological factor of losing your confidence, and then the momentum just works against you.
4: Yeah, Takaki, uh, tak-aki Nakagami, uh, Honda Honda's twenty twenty four test rider alongside Stefan Bradl, I reckon.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the unfortunate reality of it. And Simon, I'm sure at some point in your career, you had that loss of confidence and uh, suddenly it gets difficult for a rider to turn it around. And it, it can all click into place overnight. But you're, you're waiting for that moment for the likes of Morbidelli. A great rider, super talented rider, a guy that whenever all the ducks are in a row, he was able to win MotoGP races, challenge for a world championship. So he knows what he can do but it's tough for a rider in that situation.
2: I think uh, with Franco, I'm so glad that you uh, are not giving him a kicking um, because I think it's well. It's clear to me that um, the last really good Yamaha that everyone could ride was a 2019 bike. Maybe the same for, Yamaha, uh, for Honda, actually, at the same period. And um, that was before all these devices really came in and you have to have them, you know what I'm saying? And um, Franco... I think um, it became kind of what I saw in the Sepang test is before Fabio fully got his mojo back, you know, meaning at Porto Mayo, um, he wasn't much faster than Frankie riding around out there. And I'm going, this is the level that Yamaha's at at the moment, you know. if you put all, all the good riders on the bike, that's where it's going to end up until you know, Fabio is pulling his hair out and then finds how to do that magic that he can do, you know, and ride it. He just go he makes the bike go around as fast as the fastest guys. but I think imagine being up against that, if you're Franco, you know. Um, it, Fabio is just so good. And if you put, I totally agree, if if they made the bike as good as everyone else, Frank else's machinery, Franco or at the front, Franco would be there. and uh, yeah, I even had a little conversation, a very short one with Carl about what he thinks of Franco, and he, he still really rates him. Its just you know he's doing what he basically he said he really rates him. he's still there, you know, it's just a real shame situation. So that's how I see it with the uh, with the Franco thing. Sorry, what were you on to next?
1: It, it It is impossible to uh, underestimate just how good all these guys are, but they need the right set of circumstances. And the unfortunate reality in our jobs is there are going to be times whenever you have to look at it and say someone's not quite performing where you expect them to. And, and that's that's just the, the reality of the job. But uh, for you, Neil, what about you? What are you expecting or, or what do you think right now as we stand after five days of winter testing in Sepang and Portimao? I mean,
3: by saying this, I'm not saying... That Mark will not be fighting for the title. I fully expect Mark to be up there fighting for the championship this year. But I think the biggest disappointment is going to be Honda, um, just from what I've seen over this over the preseason. It's been a it's been a tough one. Um, you know, they were sort of given a a very stern talking to by their lead rider at the Valencia test, and he made it very clear to them that what they brought to the Valencia test was nowhere near enough to take that next step forward and, and challenge to caddy regularly. Um, and I think during the off season, I was expecting a bit more from them. It does seem that they've made a, a tiny step forward, but again, it's, it's not really anything that substantial, anything that will, that will take them consistently to, to the front with, you know, all of their riders. Now, we know, you know, Joanne Meir, Alex Rins, John and they're two really, really capable guys. They finished first and third in the championship, uh, what, three years ago in 2020. You know, they have they have a really strong lineup of riders, but you just get the impression that they're a bit lost and not really understanding the the kind of immediate direction to take. And, you know, speaking to Simon, when you were over in, in Sepang, Saif, when we were talking for the After the Flag show, um there was just a feeling of slight disarray just like what what's going on here how do we how do we make that next step and you know for a company of honda's uh resources um you know it's kind of technical know-how it's just it's surprising i feel that um they're still like this you know they used to be the benchmark for kind of technical innovation and, and you really don't look to them anymore for that for that spark uh, yeah, I mean,
4: it's not that they're not trying because you—I mean, you saw that they had three chassis, or three at least three different frames in um, uh, in Sepang. Uh, I thought they had two frames at Portimao and then I went back and looked at pictures and saw one which was, which was, you know, even more different. But even then, Mark was spending all of his time on the chassis that he liked in Sepang. He's chosen it. Uh, we heard, um, I think, yesterday uh, that Calex are going to be producing uh, a complete chassis, complete, uh, you know, frame for, uh, for HRC, which again is almost unprecedented. Um they are really trying, but I think it's exactly what Simon was saying earlier. The game has moved on, and Honda are sort of, you know, they're chasing around trying to find a way... Uh, to be competitive, to try to understand, you know, the the, the way that MotoGP is now, uh, and they seem to be they're still sort of like catching up, solving problems from two thousand and twenty one or, or two thousand and twenty rather than you know the problems of of, of twenty twenty three. Whereas definitely uh, Ducati and Aprilia, are, uh, uh, you know, they've moved way ahead.
2: Another way to put that, Neil, is um, basically Ducati are two years ahead. You know, they literally are two years ahead in their development, you know, and I think same with, um, they're they're probably only a year ahead of uh, Aprilia because Aprilia have done a great job of of, uh, closing the gap, you know, they seem to be consistent, you know, constantly closing. Um, uh, But the others, I think, are all trying to bridge that two years of of, uh, Ducati's development, you know, and it's not easy. Um, Just about Honda, um, it doesn't seem like Honda have, a strong point i said this middle of last year in any area you know they didn't have the fastest bike anymore meaning in a straight line which they always kind of had you know for decades you know and even if it didn't handle that great they had a great rider to ride around it um there is no sort of area that you can see that they've got an edge you know and they seem really in trouble and and um look i'm not trying to bag them because quite the opposite i think that it's a very good sign that honda are humble enough to go and ask calix to make a chassis you're afraid because if you don't do that when you're in trouble i mean everyone else does it everyone is buying info and knowledge from the leaders you know like everybody it's, it's always happened like that and uh if the, you know they've kind of been stagnating for a while, haven't been able to do it alone. I think respect for being humble enough to ask a specialist in a different area and help them get back on their feet. And I'm sure they're a giant, aren't they? Everyone will agree. And as soon as they get close to being back on their feet, they'll get on a roll and we'll see the old Honda back, you know. But uh, at the moment, they seem like I feel so sorry for the riders last year and beginning of this year that um, the – the Honda doesn't seem to do anything really well. And and we even saw things like high sides, you know, things I believe that you just don't see now. Nobody else does that, you know, fires their riders in the air. There's been so much over the last kind of three years that, uh, it's time to ask for help from, from outside.
1: Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Calix obviously heavily involved with BMW and superbikes as well. And they are just getting, uh, getting that knowledge across as well. It's going to be really interesting to see how it works whenever they're able to introduce that chassis down the line. Um, Just to move on from from this to one of the big talking points is always going to be who's going to be the top independent over the course of the season, given what we saw last year with Anea Bastianini able to win races, challenge for the championship. it's, uh, It's going to be one of the big talking points all the way through this year. Why will it not be a Ducati rider? Is it possible that it won't be a Ducati <laughs> rider as the top independent, Dave?
4: Uh, no. Um, okay. But
1: well, which Ducati rider is going to be exactly. the top Exactly.
4: It it, it's going to be which... It, um, uh, I am going to go for Alex Marquez because I think Alex looks really... He just looked absolutely fantastic on the bike out there. Um, obviously, Jorge Martin is absolutely sort of brimming with talent. Um, and normally you would say it would be Jorge Martin, but just Alex... Um, Given the speed that he was up to in such a short time, and the the absolute joy he was radiating in riding the bike, and speaking, he was so relaxed. He was no like he was he was happy that he crashed, so at least he knew that the bike had a uh, had a limit. So, um, yeah, for me, I think it's going to be Alex Marquez.
1: Yeah, and just about that as well, David. goes back to what we were talking about with Franco Morbidelli. It's always easy to underestimate just how good riders are. Alex Marquez yeah. is a double world champion. Like he's a great rider all the way through his career but you get to motor gp and it's so tough and now he's got the package underneath him to show what he can do but simon who's going to win more races this year alex or mark
2: oh that's a tough one um but i'd, I'd still have okay for wins i'd still have to say mark because they're going to go to a couple of places where he's just amazing you know i think we're going to see i think we're going to see alex win one or go very close you know um so look guys i don't know the answer of the question you know who's going to be the best independent but we picked the wrong person as our special guest for this preview (laughs) don't sell yourself short no but can i um put across what i do know to help you decide you know and <laughs> what is what I I mean okay we're talking about Alex Marquez um Alex I really like him he's a, a intelligent polite um good guy you know and he is a hard worker he's going to be more consistent you know because he's a thinker he'll do things right and finish make the bike finish and get good points so I think he's going to do well in the championship, you know? Like, um, I don't think he's the same... I, well, I, I I would say I know, but I don't think he's the same level of talent of his... For example, his brother, Fabio, okay? And is coming, you know? I, and I'm sorry, but I do put Jorge Martin in that level of brilliance. So, when... What it comes down, the thing I don't know, is I suspect Jorge can make that click, which he didn't last year, he, went, he clicked the wrong way, you know, just things just fell to bits. Not all was his fault, but I think some was his fault, you know, I'm not, I think he he got distracted, uh, the the things weren't, in, you know, that 23, 23 engine, sorry, 22 engine, um, but I think Jorge Martín Has got everything, the machine and the ability, and hopefully now the experience and the discipline. You know, that's the thing. If he's got the discipline and the focus, I think he can fight for the fucking championship. He's that good. He's that good, you know? It's just, I have no idea if he's going to keep that focus and discipline to give himself the chance to do it because he's got the whole package to do it. So, and then, the the other two is the obvious ones is Bez um, like that kid is great you know um, I think Bez is definitely going to give Alex Marquez a run um, and he's going to give all the independent ones a run um, and he's got one it's only a second year on the bike you know and he's got the ability to do the consistent lap times you know race distance bang 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 and he's so young the the kid is really good he's a, he's a natural. Um, and then to me, uh, Raúl's not going to be ready this year. He's going to do. He's going to surprise the shit out of some people. You're going to go, wow, you know, at some events. But I think Oliveira is going to challenge all those guys that we're just talking about for the independent best one. But because he has the brilliance, he, he okay, he doesn't have the factory factory bike. But they're going to look after him, you know. Um, and the guy is brilliant. So, but to me, my gut feeling is. If you know, so all of them guys, all of them need to click and have that focus and determination. Um, and we sitting here right now don't know who's going to do that. You don't know, you know, how their seasons are going, you don't know about their personal lives, and that's why I say I don't know. But if I had to put my money on one of those guys, if it does click, it's Jorge Martin fighting Marquez. Sorry, um, Peko uh Peko's brilliant teammate, Bastianini, and, of course, Fabio. And I think Jorge can stir them up. So let's see what happens.
0: Simon, you've taken Dave's tactic of um, kind of suggesting three or four different riders when we ask him for a prediction for a race win. But, um, <laughs> yeah, hedging your bets is, you know, it's oh, a oh, decent...
2: No, no, I thought we were talking about championship, you know. Is that right or not? Are we talking about oh, race win? Yeah yeah.
4: yeah, yeah. No, 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 we're taking, no. We're talking about the championship. But yeah, I like to uh, I like to spread my bets a bit. I like to choose them all and that hey, way. I'm, I'm always just trying be right. to give you
2: the info, guys. <laughs> and I did it honestly.
0: <laughs> I, um, for, for, my, for my tip for the independent rider, I agree that Jorge Martin has the, the one lap speed, Simon, like you say. In fact, I really want to look it up after we've finished this call because I'm sure he has more pole positions than quite a lot of the riders on the grid throughout the classes. But uh, the problem with Martin is he just doesn't seem to bounce that well. Um, I know, which is a ridiculous thing to say, because anything can happen in a crash to anybody. Uh, But, you know, if Martin goes down, he tends to break something, which could be a a determining factor. But for me, I think it's Luca Marini this year. Um, It's going to be his third year on the Ducati. Um, Yes, he's looked great in testing, which doesn't always mean anything. Um, But he had half a dozen top six finishes last year rode fantastically in Austria and in Mizano I think he's a guy that does have the intelligence um you know we know he's a taller rider which is not always the the biggest benefit of course in, in any class in in MotoGP but uh, I think Marini's going to raise that level of consistency that he usually brings to a high level I think he'll take his first podium results and um he'll be the guy that kind of sets maybe the the bar in that second group of Ducati riders
1: yeah, just looking at it as well, like um, in terms of those polls, it's only Peko, Maverick, Fabio, and Mark that have more polls than Jorge Martín. And that was always the case as well in the junior classes. So uh, I, I do think that, uh, like what you're saying there, Simon, we always talk a lot in the pod about the, the different tiers for riders. And you've got your tier one riders, there's not a big difference down to the next group of riders. But if you were a manufacturer, if you're a team manager, you know, there's certain guys that you want to have in your bike. Martine, Always flashes what he could be. And uh, if he puts it all together, he certainly could well be that top independent rider. I'm excited to see what he does because him in the Model 3 and then especially the Model 2 class he always looked like he could put it all together. So this could be the season for him. But Neil, what about you? Who's going to be your top independent I mean,
3: it's not very original after what Simon said, but I have to go with Martini. He just looks so settled. He was super strong in Sepang. um, In Portimao on the final day, he said he didn't even do an all-out time attack at the end of the day. He was really happy with what he had done prior to that. Um, And I think it took him around 10 races last year to find a base setting that he was comfortable with. He's already found one now um so he's going into the season feeling kind of sorted on a technical level um he he says that he's been training better than he ever has done before so yeah i I kind of share simon's viewpoint that um he won't just be the the top independent rider but he might actually be a factor in the overall championship
1: yeah and we did see last year as long as you got the right team around you you can challenge for the championship as an independent rider but just to move on from that to the big Talking point coming into the season, he's going to be the world champion. Does anyone think Peko doesn't defend the championship?
3: No, possibly. Uh, yes,
4: I mean, nobody thinks
3: I that. Mean, yeah, possibly. Yes. I do. Me too, as well. Well, you're all wrong.
1: <laughs> so you're putting your you're putting your money on the table, Neil. Who's going to win the world championship?
3: Uh, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to look past the Ducati over a full season where we have what 42 races, well, 21 races and 21 sprints, Dave. Uh, no, forty-two races, seven hundred and seventy-seven points up for up for grabs, and the fact that Ducati do have such a clear advantage over their rivals currently makes me think that you know the 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 world champion will come from a uh, Ducati rider. Um, and yeah, I think Pecco will start the season really, really well. Um, but I think when you look at the kind of progress that Anea has made in the kind of final, especially on the final day in Portimao, I think that bodes really well for his championship. And you look at his progression over the last couple of years he went from i think two podium finishes in 2021 to finishing third in the world championship last year with four victories he shows that he has the mindset and the hunger and the uh, the frankly the the kind of selfishness that you need to succeed at the the very top level to be a world champion i, I think he showed that all in abundance last year um yeah i'm not expecting an to maybe be leading the championship. Um, by the time we get to Le Mans or Mugello but I do think that he's going to gradually get stronger as the year goes on and he's going to just be there as a constant menace and a constant pain for his teammates so yeah I think an A will be the champion
2: listen to that baritone voice of reason <laughs> I think that was magic mate really really well put
0: my bet then, if I'm if if we if we nobody's saying Peko, then if I'm in that camp, I'm I'm going to tip Fabio actually. Um, and I know if we're talking about anybody that's not on a Ducati, then it's maybe akin to the the finale of the film Zulu, um, where you know the, the the soldiers are trying to repel multiple hordes of invaders coming over the walls. But um, I think Guazzararo has extra speed. Uh at the end of the test, he found a very important step with the Yamaha. He's brilliant. He's another year older, he's yeah. another year more experienced. Let's also remember that while Bagnaya was brilliant to peg back 91 points last year, there were also some freak incidents happening with Quaterara that stopped him being even closer to the world championship, his second at the end of the season. Um so I just think if, if Quateraro can sort out The qualifying, if you can get anywhere near those front two rows like he did in his championship winning year, then I I think his, his brilliance is going to make life difficult. Um, and in fact, I'm really looking forward to perhaps even a duel between Pecco and Fabio again um it could be you know a spat that goes on for another year or two even though as like you know Simon's mentioned about Jorge Martin and Neil about Bastianini um I, I really I'm curious to see if Bastianini has the uh, the personality to be a championship leader Neil um when it gets into the real stressful situations I thought Bagnaya was brilliant last year in Sepang when he handled all that intense scrutiny. And I wonder if Bastianini has the kind of character to, to handle a similar situation. But um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit of heart rule in the head. But I just think, you know, it'd be nice to see something that someone that's not a Ducati rider pushing to the fore. So yeah, Fabio, why not?
4: like I'm really looking forward to seeing Fabio because the bike is a lot better so he's going to be a lot more competitive and uh, yeah yes Bastianini's definitely made progress but if you go back and look at last year uh, the two people with the most polls were Jorge Martín and Peko Baniaya we've got the sprint races qualifying is going to be so important Um, uh, so I think that Peko is going to to pick up a lot of points in the sprint races Uh, that's going to give him really good momentum going into Sunday um, uh, meaning he's always going to end up with a good result on uh, on a Sunday as well. The Ducati is brilliant. I think it's going to be very very difficult. I think he also that he is clearly the best Ducati rider. So I think that uh, Banyaya is going to be uh, is going to be champion. Also, just because he's he's going to get off to a good start, we're going to get to sort of like the, the I don't know, Lamar, Jerez or Lamar, and he's going to feeling really, really comfortable, uh, and he's going to just have everything going in the right uh, going in the right direction. So I, I I can't see anyone beating him. I can see it being interesting and exciting and some and so having some fantastic battles, but I think the championship is going to be fairly clear.
2: Guys, well, um, I don't know who's going to win the championship. Um, I agree that it should be a Ducati rider uh, and I have to add something to um, what Adam said is the reason I don't think Fabio is going to win the championship is uh, what I've seen the last two years is because his bike is not as good as the people he's racing against, he digs so deep and does something magic and you're just like, wow. And then he does it again. And you're going, wow, wow, weekend after weekend. And the last two years, he's run out of steam um, sort of two-thirds through the year, somewhere a halfway point. And I think that it's too much to expect the rider to dig deep like that every weekend, trying to make his bike look better than it is. And uh, for the same reason, Mark is doomed as well. He's going to just do brilliant and brilliant and brilliant and but you can't defend with 42 starts i didn't say racist um you can't defend all year and expect your rider to ride at that level um i mean sure they can do it and they can pull it out but you can't ride like that every weekend are trying to defend against better equipment, you know. So that's why I think Mark and Fabio, as great as they are, they should be fighting for it and they will be fighting for it, but I just don't think they'll get it across the line and be world champions against those Ducatis. Do you think it's going to be more difficult doing it
4: twice? A, because, like, you know, last year, uh, Fabio was having to pull something extra out of the bag, you know, once a weekend. This year, he's going to have to do it twice a yeah. weekend. Do, do, does that make it twice as hard or, or, or
2: yes. because they're short of races? Yes, yeah. because I think um, the way I would put it is that it takes – you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to get something mm. very special out of yourself, you know, and you've only got so much mental – Uh, what's the word? Is it strength? I don't know, to be able to do those brilliant rides, you know? And I think, like I said, what I've seen is around half season, um, he somehow, I suspect, gets uh, gets too much, you know? Mm. And if the bike was the same, he would only have to pull it out when he needed it. But Mm. he has to pull it out every race. And um, Mm. I don't think it's possible for even Mark and Fabio to do that so yeah with 40 42 starts it's going to be even worse yes there's only so much water you can draw from the well, and mm. that's
1: going to be the case all the way through this season as well like you said 42 starts means that there's more chances for something to happen but you also need to be at the front to keep yourself out of trouble so it's going to be really interesting when motor gp gets underway and, by the time that uh, this pod is published it's only going to be 48 hours until the start of the 2023 season down in Portimao so simon as usual it's great to have you on the pod we ended up running over quite a distance and uh, we ran over to such a degree that my recorder decided to die that's why i've switched to the zoom audio so apologies to everyone for that at this stage of the pod but uh, simon great to have you on the show again and uh, we're all looking forward to listening to you all the way through the course of this season
2: my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on, and um, sorry to make you run overtime, but hope it I hope it was uh, worth it for the listeners.
1: Far from it, Simon. It was really good to have you on the show, so check out MotoGP.com for the video pass to be able to get Simon's insights all the way through the course of the season. If you do that, you also get Neil's insights on uh, the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. And uh, check out On Track Off Road for Adam's insights all the way through the course of the season. Obviously, now that we're into the MXGP season and the MotoGP season, Adam's absolutely flat out. So check out On Track Off Road. And as ever, motormatters.com for David Emmett. For all of us on the Paddock Pass Podcast, if you want additional content through the course of the season, check out patreon.com forward slash paddock podcast. We'll have our paddock notes shows all the way through the season. So every day that there's on track action, We'll make sure to get uh, all the news and the info from the debriefs straight to everyone through the course of the MotoGP season. So check out patreon.com forward slash podcast. As ever, a big thank you to Rentall Street and for KTM for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the pod and giving us your feedback as well on Twitter. Check out at paddockpasspod.com for any questions you have through the course of the season and any insights that you want as well. So check that out, as well as Patreon and all of our usual channels. This episode of the Paddock
2: Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Yes, I'm here.